This is Undisciplined. I'm Matthew LaPlante. When sociologists Jill Souter and Carl Pilmer first proposed a study to better understand the factors that go into making somebody a favorite child, well, they were repeatedly told that it just wouldn't work. Even if it was true that parents did have favorites, what mother or father was going to admit to it? Well, that was almost 20 years ago, and the Within Family Differences study has been extremely successful, offering findings that have resulted in the publication of more than 60 journal articles, hundreds of media reports, and a popular TED Talk. Why all the interest? Well, it might be because the study pulls back the curtain on something we all know but we don't really talk about. Parents often have favorites, but Souter says children are often wrong about who the favorite is and what being a favorite actually means. Jill Souter is joining us today on the line from Indiana, where she is a distinguished professor of sociology at Purdue University. Jill Souter, welcome. Hi, thank you. Happy to be here. So I'm always interested in the path researchers take toward the questions they end up asking and and trying to answer during their careers. And You know, sometimes it's just like really obvious. Like the other day I was talking to a marine biologist and she told me that she grew up on the beach diving with her parents. And so that, you know, that makes sense why she was fascinated with the ocean. You study the hidden nuances in the relationships between parents and their adult children. And maybe I'm tempting Pandora a little here, but I'm wondering where your interest in that subject came from. My interest came from two directions, one being the sort of science direction, the other being sort of lived experience perspective. So I'd always been interested from the time I started undergraduate school in how interpersonal relationships affected health, particularly psychological health. And I also have come from a, what at the time, probably I thought was a really kind of strange and unusual family. I now by now having studied families, and particularly <laughs> intergenerational relations for 40 years, I'm like, yeah, not so unusual. And actually, like, even when we talk about families, we all sort of say, oh, that's such a lovely family. And we use expressions like that. And an awful lot of those families, it's like, yeah, it's a lovely family. Nobody ever mentions Joe, though, do they? You know, Joe's the kid who hasn't, nobody's talked to in 10 years and has had lots of problems. But we sort of, I think we all tend to like to idealize families because it's, that one, what we would like to think of, whether in actuality it always is, but that sort of safe haven, particularly times like right now, where there's a lot of chaos in the world. And so part of my interest came from feeling like my family was unusual. And in, in some ways it was. My mom was 45 when she had me, and that in and of itself was quite unusual, especially then. And so I think that my wondering, well, why do families work so differently? And I probably did begin with the assumption that mine was one of the unusual, highly dysfunctional families. My parents were married and divorced to and from each other twice, Ooh. lived together afterwards. And I mean, and this was starting when, in the 1940s. I was sort of coming from perspective of, well, my family was really unusual. So what led to my family being so unusual when all these other families fit that image we have? So there are all these complications in families, and that's what makes it fascinating to study. Let me ask you about your mother-in-law, because when you were in the planning stages of this study, you you talked to her about this idea, and she was among those who said maybe this wasn't something she would want to talk about. Can you talk about that? Yes. My mother-in-law, who's really 
wonderful woman, but very, very fond of both of my parents-in-law. My mother-in-law's response when I told her what we were going to be studying was she said, oh, well, if someone asked me, I would tell them it was a dog. So <laughs> The dog was uh, her favorite. <laughs> yeah, and she said, I would, I would say that, I would not. So and we had a lot of people who had that sort of response or who said, I remember at the time having a colleague who, I guess I was in her office, and when I was talking to her about the study, she closed the door as if she was about to tell me some sort of national security secret and said, well, I've never really said this, but actually, I love my kids all the same, but, but. I'm really closer to. And the entire study, right up to the data, as I was assigning cases for this third wave of the study, and I was assigning, transcribing, and coding to my uh, graduate students who work on the project, and was looking at their transcripts, and yep, we still have uh, the adult children talking about their own children, saying again, well, of course I love all my children the same, and then pausing and saying, but I really would prefer Susan mm. as my caregiver, or when there's something really problematic, I really want to talk to Kathy. And fortunately, we don't ask directly, well, who's your favorite child? Because we know everyone would say, I don't have one. This is why you and your colleagues had to develop a workaround, right? You couldn't just ask people who your favorite child is. You had to develop questions that helped answer that question without asking it directly. Right, exactly. And I think that these questions showed us also that this is a very complex matter because, again, they rarely there will be that occasional mom or dad who will name the same kid for everything positive when they talk about preferring a child as opposed to definitely finding fault with a child or feeling mm -hmm. that's a child who has been the one with whom they have the most conflict or in whom they're most disappointed. And so we find that moms and dads don't usually name the same child through all of those who would you prefer as your caregiver, as your confidant, as the child you'd most like to socialize with, who you're emotionally closest to. We find a little more consistency when we ask about conflict and disappointment. And huh. there we're more likely to see parents naming the same child, but not always, particularly with daughters. Mothers are most likely to name daughters as those as the children to whom they're most emotionally close. At the same time, they're also more likely to name daughters as the children they have conflict with because when we're really close to someone, that's often the person we sort of feel safer just saying exactly what we think with than people we are less close with. So it, it's very complex and it actually ends up being important because we know that adult children's perceptions, particularly being disfavored by their parents, is the strongest predictor of those adult children's psychological well-being. Mm any factor except their own physical health. So when it comes to determining who a parent is going to be closest to when they're older, or even maybe who a parent is going to be disappointed by when they're over, how much does it matter what a parent and child's relationship looked like when the child was growing up? Because we very intentionally started the study with later life families, where we had a sample of moms 65 to 75 at time one, and what we asked about, particularly asked what their children said about whether they, quote, played favorites when they were growing up, we don't have the data collected from that point. If we ask them to report on this retrospectively, interestingly, on one hand, those retrospective reports 
do affect current psychological well-being, yet surprisingly, they're not very highly correlated with what those adult children report Hmm. as adults. But it appears those perceptions, both the actual feelings of preferring some children over others, what we found is at least across the period of a study, which by now is getting pretty long, that there's a much more stability than instability, both with what moms say and what adult children perceive. And let's talk about that perception, because one of the things at some point you and your colleagues realized that the perception that children had of who their parents favorite was, was often wrong. And not just often, but like the majority of the time it was wrong. Is that right? That is exactly right. And from a perspective of both studying parents and adult children is to realize that you may be quite sure that you are the child that your mom is most disappointed in. And we know that affects your psychological well-being. However, we know that the majority of the time you are wrong because Hmm. we've, we've interviewed mom and we know what mom said and you are the majority of the time you aren't the child she named or mom named no child. So discrepancies between those parents and children become important, both in terms of thinking about for practitioners, how to work with adult children who feel really badly that, well, I've always been a disappointment to my mom. That's always been really sad. It doesn't seem like I can ever do anything right. And in fact, the majority of the time that perception's wrong, inconsistent perceptions also end up creating potentially problematic situations when adult children are providing care. Because Mm -hmm. The children who are you know, maybe very sure that they are the children whom their mom either did or did not want as their primary caregiver, but again, they're only right about 40% of the time. And yet we know that when, from following these families from time one to time two, that if at time two, if mothers had serious illness or injury for which they needed assistance, if that child who they named seven years earlier as the one they preferred as their future caregiver, if that child is not playing a role, they don't have to be the only caregiver. But if they're not playing a role at all in that caregiving, mom's psychological well-being is much lower Mm, than if that child is involved. Yet there are these substantial discrepancies. And what mom is going to say to her child, particularly the child who is caring for her. And so there are a whole bunch of factors that make this very awkward, which is why we really hope that healthcare professionals working with later life families know that when you're going to have that conversation with mom about, okay, so you're now that you've had your knee replaced, it's good if you can go stay with someone for the next five weeks. These conversations are important, but it's important healthcare providers talk to those moms separately and say, so when we think about this, what would you really prefer? Would you rather go to a rehab center? Would you prefer to go spend those six weeks with one of your kids? And if so, which one? Because certainly if that conversation is taking place, A, with only the kids, well, the kids probably really don't know what mom wants, although they think they do. And if mom is there, it's pretty hard for that mom even to say, well, I'd really rather go to the rehab center when an adult child would say, oh, mom, no, 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 I want you to come with me. That's one of the messages we really try to get out is to healthcare professionals. People don't leave hospitals if they're going to need ongoing care without social workers and doctors and nurses being involved in 
what happens after that care, talking to mom separately is really important. So you started this study in the early 2000s. You did interviews with more than 550 moms. You went back in the second phase of the study to that same group of mothers again. That was in 2008. And you were able to re-interview about 85% of them along with even more of their children that time along. Are there stories from these interviews that come back to you that, that stand out either as illustrative of what you found or maybe as interesting outliers? It's an interesting question because there are sort of two ways of looking at data. I'm trying to look for the outliers and trying to look for the sort of patterns of sort of central tendency. What do you find most often? As a survey methodologist, my inclination is to feel they're equally valid ways to look at them. I admit that I'm always trying to look at those central tendencies. What do we find that is most like the majority of the families? Because in part, I guess, because I feel like that's maybe where the study can contribute most, making a contribution to to the public and to public health and policy and practice. And there are quite a few. One of the nice things about this study, which unfortunately makes it a very expensive study to do also, is that it, from the very inception, has always been mixed methods. So we collect a lot of data and closed-ended questions, but we have an awful lot of follow-up questions so that you're asked, which child would you prefer care for you if you have a serious illness or injury? And you say, Susan, that... We follow up and say, okay, so why did you name Susan? Mm-hmm. Yeah. And so we have all of those data transcribed. And so we actually tell our most typical sorts of publication has both very sophisticated quantitative analyses, but then a lot of qualitative analyses where we do give examples, obviously completely anonymously, you would not recognize your own quote uh, or your own family, but uh, where we can have a lot of richness so that we can talk about these families. And basically, if you are seriously ill, you are sort of saying to that care person, you know, I really want to be able to trust you to make decisions for me if for some reason I can't for myself. And someone who when you really feel really sick and you don't want to have to explain what you really want, a person who's going to know. These are really emotional questions that you were asking and that you're inviting response to. I imagine it can be a challenge for any sociologist to maintain emotional distance from the subjects that they're studying, given the deep and emotional insights that that researchers in this field are often looking for. But it seems that could be a particular challenge for researchers involved in a longitudinal study like this, where you really get to know people not just once, but many times over the course of decades in this case. Yes. When I began in this field, I collected all my own data, and they were always mixed method studies, and they were always longitudinal, and I can still remember going into their homes. I mean, this Mm, was 40 years ago, 35 years ago. And so when I would hear stories, then now there's this layer between me and the subject. So I actually do not know the last names of anybody who's participated in this study. I don't know their phone numbers. I don't know their addresses. I know they're a random sample of women who are 65 to 75 in Boston. And all of the data have been collected by the Center for Survey Research at the University of Massachusetts, Boston, 
which is absolutely phenomenal survey center. And they have kept all of those records. And it's allowed me on one hand to not worry as much about some respondents as I did when I actually sat in their homes four times over the course of a year for three or four hours. This year, you've entered the third phase of the study, which is focused even more on the adult children of the original cohort of mothers you interviewed. And that's one of the reasons for that is that these women were in their 60s and 70s 20 years ago, and and many of them have passed on now. So you're really getting an opportunity to understand how these dynamics that you researched and came to understand in the first two waves or the first two phases of the study play out in terms of things like acceptance and grief. Yes. And I've been very fortunate that Megan Gilligan, who is an associate professor in human development and family studies at Iowa State University, what we both noticed when we would give talks is that the most poignant stories I'd hear, this is also unusual as an academic to get poignant stories after you give an academic talk. Uh, (laughs) Usually people will come up and ask you, some very sophisticated question about your statistical analysis. Instead, right. I have scholars come up to me whose work I know, and I, I, you know, I know nothing about their families, come up to me afterwards, or sometimes even stand up during the talk and say, well, let me tell you about, and they will talk about their stories and their families. The most poignant ones are never when mom or dad are alive. And this is what led Megan and me to say, we really need to do the study of bereavement, because when people would come up, particularly people who felt that their parents were disappointed in them, or they had high levels of conflict with their moms or their dads, they would talk about how, well, you know, I cared for my mom for so many years. And I always felt my mom was never very close to me. And she was always disappointed in me. And then the day that she died, she pulled my head down to say something in my ear. And I thought that's what this woman was going to say was, and she said, you know, I really love you so much. And thank you for taking care of me. Um, No, her mom actually pulled her head down to say to her, you know, I never really did like you very much. Oh, my. And that was the most poignant of any of them. But we heard so many over the last several years of people talking about how they wished that they'd been able to make their relationship different by the time their moms or their dads passed away. Because no matter how tumultuous your relationship is with your parent. When your parents alive, you always know there's that chance that things can be made better. Mm-hmm. But once you've lost that parent or sibling, we also are looking at sibling bereavement too, because we really didn't expect this or think much about it, but we know that people pass away in adulthood. And that if people have lost a, a sibling, but even more so a parent, and they feel that that relationship just wasn't right, they then have another 20, 30, 40 years to live after they have lost that parent, being left with the feelings they had at that time. And so we expect, and what we're already finding just by looking at the transcripts of the 150 interviews we've done in the last two months, that these feelings of having felt favoritism and disfavoritism in the family, again, which are very very most likely wrong, but the adult children's perceptions have a substantial effect blatantly on the relationships with their siblings. And many many families, there's a lot of sibling conflict, particularly after that last parent passes away. Patterns of perceiving yourself as disfavored, that all of these perceptions 
feed into what is a very difficult time. Losing a parent is very difficult. So we actually think, while we're very you know, proud of and excited about the well, the first 20 years of this study, we actually think what we're doing now is probably the most important part is what happens when mom and dad pass away. What you're looking at now includes the study of adult grandchildren of these people that you've been interviewing for 20 years. It's got to be fascinating to see the ways in which the nature of parent-child relationships in one generation impacts the nature of the same sorts of relationships in the next generation. Yes. Actually, we have some of that. I have a graduate student right now, in fact, who's writing her dissertation using actually the time one data because we actually asked the moms about their relationships with their parents and their siblings and their friends. And she's actually looking at this transmission across these three generations. But now we're actually going, starting into the field next week, collecting the data directly from these adult grandchildren. And so we haven't seen it yet, but we are very excited about seeing it because we know from other people's studies that very clearly the relationship you're likely to have with your grandparents is greatly affected by the relationship that your parent has with his or her parent. How does your work influence the way you think about the generational relationships that you're a part of? That I myself am a part of? Yeah. I think it's reinforced what I've always felt, which was that intergenerational relationships are, best guess is your relationship with your mom, for example, be it really good, be it really bad, it will probably be the longest relationship that you will have in your life, except perhaps with your sibling, especially if you're a woman and have a sister. And that these sibling relationships, and especially these parent-child relationships, have really strong impacts on well-being. And I guess that's one of the reasons I was interested in studying them to begin with, was thinking that they did. And in some sense, we're all told, there's this general sense of people should grow up and grow away from their parents and away from their siblings. After all, you're an adult now. You should have all these other people in your life should have much greater impact on you. And what we find is that your siblings and especially your parents, your relationship with your parents has a strong impact, whether you would like it to or not, that it does. And actually, another colleague we have found that you know, clearly having parents who, for example, we know that the flow of support, emotional support, financial support, practical support, it flows from one generation down to the next until parents are well into their 70s, typically. It's no longer that by the time mom is 60, maybe she'll be sitting in a rocking chair and you'll be the one trying to help her rock and take care of the house. It doesn't work that way. By and large, if she's 60 and you're moving, she's probably going to be there packing boxes for you. And so that flow of support or the recognition that you're not getting that support, these relationships, regardless of whether we we're supposed to, quote, outgrow their importance in our lives, that they continue to be important, whether we quote want them to be or not, and they shape our they shape our well being. Do you think that knowing what you know now, I guess I should ask first, like, did you have a perception of who your parents' favorite was, and what their preferences were when you were growing up and when you were uh, in your earlier adult years? That now, looking back through the framework of your research, you might question? Actually, no. And that's because I had one of those very unusual families where 
everybody told the same story about who was favored and by whom. There seemed to be no discrepancies. And it was very uh, out in the open. And so it was very clear. And both my parents and my brother and I would have all agreed that um, I was much closer to my dad than I was to my mom. And that my mom was much closer to my brother than she was to me, which is also counter to what we generally find. So it made me, in fact, probably if I'd known how many inconsistencies there were and had had the good fortune of perhaps perceiving that I was likely wrong, might have been a little easier. But in my family, it was actually sort of very openly stated. And that's probably also part of what made me so interested in studying this was, well, her other families like this where everybody seems to know and this is not a good thing. Or maybe other families didn't really have favorites and disfavorites. Or if they did, nobody really had any perception that that was going on. So it sort of done meant for me that I learned a lot from the study. It certainly reinforced my belief that all these patterns of favoritism and disfavoritism do affect well-being and they're very long-lasting. But it clearly, I realized my family was a real outlier on that. Most families, there's no agreement among anybody as to who moms or dads prefer for almost anything. That's Jill Souter. She's a distinguished professor of sociology at Purdue University and the principal investigator of the Within Family Differences study, which will be turning 20 years old next year. Jill Souter, thank you. Thank you very much for your interest in the study. Undisciplined is a production of Utah Public Radio, and if you happen to live in Utah, you can listen to us every Friday at 2 p.m. on UPR. If you miss us then, you can listen to every episode of Undisciplined wherever you get your podcasts. Our producer is Naomi Ward. Our associate producer is Mia Dora. Our theme music is Little Idea by Benjamin Tissot, and I'm Matthew LaPlante. Thanks for listening. Now go have big ideas.